welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. I'm back, and today I have an absolutely delightful guest. Lauren Wittig is an intuitive energy healer and transformation mentor, the founder of Heartlight Wellness, the host of Curiously Wise Podcast, which is where we connected, and an award-winning novelist. Her passion is assisting her clients through their journeys out of mind, body, and or spiritual pain and into a life of passion and joy. Lauren's own journey from emotional pain and deteriorating health to happiness and great health with the assistance of several intuitive healers is the very thing that inspires her passion to help others with her own healing gifts. Welcome, Lauren. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks, Jen. I'm so happy we get to have another conversation. Oh, me too. (laughs) It was so, before we jumped on, we were talking about, neither of us could remember the exact details of what we talked about, but we could remember the energy. And which really reminds me of something. People don't remember you for what you do. They remember you for how they make you feel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that certainly is the case for me with you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was just so much fun to, to be in that, that conversation and, and in the energy with you. I just had a blast. So yeah, me too. Yeah. And you guys check out Lauren's podcast, Curiously Wise, because it is awesome. Yeah. There Thank are so you. many things, even in your bio that I'm like, award-winning novelist, <laughs> let's talk about that. But we're going to talk about some other stuff, but I didn't, you know, the piece about deteriorating health, That's Mm -hmm. another thing that I would love to talk about because, you know, that seems to be such a challenge for so many empaths, especially if we don't know we're empaths. Before we go there, (laughs) let's start at the beginning and just talk about kind of, you know, what was it like to be, I'm assuming, a highly sensitive empathic child? Yeah, I highly sensitive is the way I was described my whole childhood. And I think the number one thing I heard from particularly from my mother is why are you crying? You've got nothing to cry about. I didn't know why I was crying. I just knew that I felt bad, you know. Um, So yeah, it's uh, being a child was difficult being an empath because I didn't know I was. I, people didn't talk about it back then. I'm you know, over 60 now. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mother was a narcissist and my dad was an alcoholic and they were both had explosive anger issues. And uh, thank God I had an older brother who was an introvert like me. And the two of us would just kind of like disappear into our rooms, <laughs> get out of, out of the way of the, what I now know were kind of emotion bombs that were being thrown back and forth. Mm, um, so mm. it was not fun. It was not easy. I was depressed a lot. Didn't really know that that's what I was feeling. Um, it was not an easy place to be as a kid. No, um, no, not no. at all. So, not at all. But I survived and I thrived. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but my health was always kind of rocky as a kid. I was sick all the time. I'd get the flu like twice a year. Wow. I had bad allergies. Of course, I grew up in a house with dogs and cats. You know, mm-hmm. so that didn't help. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably the main thing was, and I didn't learn this until literally 
my my mid to late 50s. So in well, maybe maybe in the last eight years or so, um, is that I learned to be afraid of everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I learned to be afraid of everything. everything. Yes. Yes. And, and being afraid was not allowed in my by my mother. You know, you sucked it up and you did what you had to do, or you did what she thought you should be doing. And so I appeared quite brave and courageous, but inside I was not. And that, of course, fear is a big um, creator of allergies. Yes, yes, yes. Well, and you're overriding your instincts and you're overriding your own fear and not honoring what's going on in your body constantly. Mm -hmm. And that, you know... I mean, I believe that there are times where the saying feel the fear and do it anyway is appropriate, especially as an adult. Like if you need to set a boundary, feel the fear and do it anyway. Mm -hmm. But if you're going, if you're being forced to do one thing after another, after another, that is not what you want to be doing Mm -hmm. and you're scared of doing it, pushing yourself through fear upon fear upon fear, I mean... It's not good for you. Not good for you. No, not at all. No, no. Yeah. So that's that was sort of the beginning of my my ill health. I think I came into the world afraid because mm-hmm. I was, you know, sickly from from an infancy. But yeah, I got I once I got away from my parents, I, I got to go to boarding school at 13 for two years. Um wow. and, and and that was because of a lot of trauma that was their their passion in life. And I was the pawn. But those two years away from home were an eye-opening experience for me. I blossomed. I was always the smart kid, but I was never the social kid. And there I, I had friends. I got I had my first boyfriend. I, you know, the teachers liked me. I was, I came out of my shell and it was wonderful. And then my parents moved from Mississippi, which is where we were living at the time. It's where my family's all from, to DC. And I changed high school midway. Oh. And had to live with them again. And that was my dad's drinking was a lot worse by that point. So that was really difficult, but I kind of escaped to school Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and they were working. And so, and I was a teenager. So I was a latchkey teenager in DC, downtown, well, Capitol Hill, DC, (laughs) not the the safest area in town um, at the time anyway. But, um, so I was alone a lot and that was actually good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that was really, I was, I was happy with that. Yeah. Then my when I chose college, it was like, how far away can I get from my parents? <laughs> no. And I wasn't allowed to go west, and I didn't want to go south because I didn't particularly like living in Mississippi. So I wasn't I went, wasn't interested in that. So I went I went north. I went to New England. I I, moved, I went to Brown in Rhode Island. Oh, and that cool. Was, that was a long, long day's drive. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, so, yeah. So I thought, okay, that's safe, and and that was great. And I I loved being up there. But I also was still feeling all the crap from my parents mm-hmm. because I was so tightly connected, especially to my dad. But then my mom was gaslighting me. Um, and so I was getting my dad's depression, even at that long distance. And I was getting my mom telling me that he wasn't drinking anymore. You should come home. And I would go home and he would be drunk. And she did that about three times. And I went, I'm not coming home again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because I just didn't didn't trust her. No. Yeah. I had a lot of trust issues, um, particularly with her, but with dad too. I mean, with an alcoholic, you just never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. They know, they don't know what's going to happen. No, (laughs) no, no, not at all. 
Yeah. So, yeah. And then uh, in college, I did find an org, a group. One of the deans had started a group for, um, for those of us who were students with parents who were alcoholics. Oh my goodness. And it was the first time I found a group that had the same experience I did. And I swear to God, looking back, they're probably all empaths because we all had the same issues. And, and it was, that's, I think when I began to understand how important community was to me. Yes. Um, and which is a big piece of, of my, my wishes for the world right now is community and my, my personal world too. But, um, yeah, so, you know, it began to, I began to separate myself and, and in that group, I was able to understand that what I was feeling was normal, not being too sensitive that other people felt the same way and that it was acceptable. And it was, it was normal, you know, and which was, you know, for an empath and that kind of family, that was, I was never the normal one. Right. You know, so, um, so that's sort of where I began to get an inkling that I was not as overly sensitive as I had always been told I was. Right. Yeah. I mean, you were responding, you were the healthy or, you know, we, I, I, some, I often think of the empaths as where the canaries in the coal mine, Mm -hmm. you know, that we're responding to the toxicity before people who can ignore it do, but we're, we're responding to something legit. It's not like it's, it's not real. And of course, in a family system, that's really dysfunctional where you've got alcoholism and you've got, you know, just raging narcissism and, and just massive rage addiction. Yeah. It's like, of course, they're going to invalidate and, and put down and tell you that you're the one who's crazy, because Mm -hmm. if you're not the one who's crazy, then they're going to have to look at their own behavior. Right. do something right. about it. Yeah. Take yeah. responsibility for it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I, I'm, you know, I look back on it and I know that I'm, I'm the strong person I am now because of what I, you know, came through. Yes. I wouldn't choose it again, but in hindsight, and it's a lot of hindsight at this point, I, you know, I, I respect the strength that I had Yeah. to, to move through that as a kid even. And yeah. that's, that's a really good thing to know about yourself. Mm-hmm. There is this inner strength that nobody thought you had. And it's funny because I used to say to people all the time, I'm so much stronger than my family thinks I am. <laughs> you know? And I didn't really understand what I was saying at the time, but I intuitively, I knew that about myself. And that was really important for my own self-esteem. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, Lauren, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about the bittersweet nature of being transformed through sort of the 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 forge of trauma and the the crucible of growing up in a dysfunctional family and on one hand we can look at ourselves and and just be like i am who i am as a result of all of this and i'm grateful for the lessons and i'm grateful for this thing mm-hmm. yet at the same time as you said there's that part of us that's like, I would not want to do this over again. And I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Mm-mm. And it's just such an interesting it's sort of, I don't know, like that paradox of yeah. we can both be grateful and still grieving at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and the grieving is important. Yes. That's another one of those things we don't want to hold in our body. No. Um, and it'll come back periodically. I still now get choked up now and then when talking about my childhood. I've done pretty well today. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's I mean, it's so important to know that that sucked. 
Yeah. It was not, I, I, I defined my parenthood, me being a parent as the opposite of what my parents did. Yes. Yes. And I mean, I really did define myself as what I wasn't going to be, mm, mm-hmm. which served me well for a while, but then at, at a point you got to figure out who you really are and what's really important. So it served me. It's one of those things that, you know, serves you for a while, keeps you protected to some degree. Um, I was very protective of my children with my parents. Mm-hmm. Understandably. <laughs> um, and um, especially my mom, because my dad, my dad did was um, dry for 20 years. I I 12th stepped him when I was 21 years old and he lived for 20 more years. Uh, he was just about to get his 20 year chip in AA. So, oh. you know, that did totally I'm, change things. I am getting chills. Yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness. He was what? such a good guy when he wasn't yeah. drunk. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, some um, of my absolute favorite people on the entire planet are recovering alcoholics. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I also think a lot of times alcoholics are empaths as well. Well, like it's I was just about common. to say he was yeah. definitely an empath. I mean, yeah. I don't think any of us knew. I mean, I don't, I, I didn't even know what that word was. Right. You know, right. At, at that point. Um, cause we're talking the sixties, seventies, Yeah, I guess the early 80, 81, I think is when I, when I 12 stepped him when I was 21 years old, he was such a big heart, such a sweet person and had so many worthiness issues. He came out of a very abusive physical and emotional family. Um, Mine was at least just emotional. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and and I just looking back at him, he's like, oh my, you know, I, I heard stories later from my grandmother, actually, my mom's mom, because she knew him when he was a child. And she said she always felt so bad for him because mm-hmm. they just didn't treat him well. Mm-hmm. So I know that he, he probably, I'm sure he was an empath yeah. and he just, you know, he, I don't know, he self, he self-medicated for depression and all of that stuff. So well, but, and we're talking yeah. about, you know, in his particular case, I'm sort of imagining that your dad was probably born in the early 30s or, you know, 1935. Yeah. Yeah. My, yeah. Same parents, same, same generation of parents. I have the yeah. same exact generation of parents. My dad was born in 33 and my mom in 35. And, you know, I mean, we are talking about a culture where men didn't do therapy. Mm-mm. where nobody was talking about adult, you know, about dysfunctional alcoholic families or abuse right. or any of these things. I mean, the basic message was, you know, you get your lot in life and you endure it and you survive it. And so, right. of course, I mean, it's like, of course, he's going to turn to alcohol. Like, mm-hmm. why yeah, and it comes from a long line of men who turned to alcohol and right. women who ended up either outliving everybody by decades uh-huh. because they're just that kind of woman we're dying early of cancer, you know? So it was like either or for the women, but the men frequently died early, were alcoholics, had heart disease, had all kinds of, yeah, it was, it was a mess. Yeah. And it was that whole depression era. It was agricultural Mississippi, um, you know, in the 1930s, forties coming up. And it just, you know, what a, what a time and place that screwed people up big time. Yeah. (laughs) So, I admire my dad for, for how he endured. I really do. But yeah, it was not easy. No, no. So, well, and what a gift that he was able to really spend the last 20 years of his life. I'm sure making rep since he was in 12 step programs, oh, yeah. making reparations and really doing a lot of good in the world, doing a lot of good. Yeah. 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 That was yeah. the one thing that was really confusing about my parents for me when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. They both were so outwardly focused in doing good in the world mm-hmm. that they looked fabulous. 
Yes. You know, and we'd get in the house and it would be Armageddon, you know? Yes, yes, um, yes. And I admire them for what they did in the world. My dad was a civil rights lawyer. My mom worked all over the world with uh, predominantly with women doing um, economic development projects with, you know, within underdeveloped worlds, underdeveloped countries. They did these amazing things, but not to me. <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. So... Yeah. Well, and that's such a I mean, that's a that's a quandary that I've thought about a lot is a great deal about is the whole thing of when you discover that a hero has feet of clay, when mm. you learn about, you know, when somebody has done an incredible amount of good in the world, but then you discover their dark underbelly and it's like, do you write off everything good that they have done? Yeah. Or do you, you know, and, you know, do, or do you see the nuances of they did a lot of good and they also were broken and wounded and, and caused a great deal of harm? Yeah. And in some ways I I, I admire them a little more for doing the good when they were so broken. Yes. You know, it wasn't what I wanted as a child. I wanted loving parents who, you know, put me first kind of thing. Right. But um, yeah, they, they did a lot of good in the world. So yeah. And I can appreciate that now. Well, and I'm also imagining that in the case of your mom, as a woman born in the 30s and developing her career at a point where the and and I mean, my mom became like so like basically started to work again when like I was maybe nine or 10 years old, like, Mm -hmm. and, you know, so we're talking early seventies that my mom went back on the workforce and I grew up in new England Mm -hmm. where there was, it was like much more liberated, but there was still like, she was an anomaly. She was a total outlier Mm -hmm. to go back out into the professional world. And for us to have a two, you know, two parents working full time, in a culture that that's not acceptable for women. So I'm just thinking, I wonder how much of your mother's narcissism got exacerbated and inflated by the need to pump herself up and Mm -hmm. basically be in some ways there, I'm imagining really like shrill, but simultaneously like really, really pleasant to get as far as she did in her career. Yeah, it's it's always amazed me how her proteges um, adore her. Yeah. And I, as an adult, when she was getting older, she got dementia the last 10 years of her life, which was a whole nother great, great way to deal with it. Oh, that's a whole podcast. You and I can <laughs> yeah. go back and we won't go to there. Yeah. But she, all these young women who she had influenced through this, um, she had taken up this program called um, Appreciative Inquiry in her work. It's a it's 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 a fabulous way of approaching problem solving in groups and businesses and things. And she taught it to a lot of people. And a lot of those people were young women of my age or younger. And I would meet some of them sometime at events that I would go to with her. And um, and they would go, oh, you're Jane's daughter. You are so lucky to have her for a mom. And of course, I didn't want to go, oh, now let me tell you the truth. <laughs> so what I learned to say was, oh, you have no idea. <laughs> so that was that was the best I could do (laughs) but yeah it was it was really amazing how but she really did she I mean she went to an all-women's college she became a teacher because that was one of the you could be a teacher or secretary pretty much when she graduated or nurse nurse. 
Yeah. That's when you got married, you were supposed to stop. Yeah. Um, and she was definitely a feminist. Gloria Steinem was her, her idol, you know, and um, she even wore her hair and got the same glasses and that kind of oh stuff. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy. But, um, yeah, so she fought hard yeah. to be accepted as a smart woman who was, you know, was able to do good in the world and get paid for it. Yes. And, you know, and I, again, I appreciate that about her. Not sure I'd choose that for my next mother, but that's okay. Right, right. <laughs> but well, yeah. You said something a little bit back that just really struck me. And it's funny because I was having a conversation with another um, another podcast guest, Victoria Shaw, the other day, where we were talking about how, you know, parenting from what you don't want to be mm-hmm. doesn't always work super well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, and I was just thinking it's like when you're parenting from what you don't want to be and you're saying you don't know who you really like, you don't necessarily know who you are, but also it tends to, I, you know, we were talking about how that can also really backfire in that, you know, you're, you're kind of, you don't necessarily like have the boundaries in place that are needed. Right. Yeah, you might yeah. be you might be overly permissive if you grew up in an environment that was really you know, not permissive enough or, Mm -hmm. you know, so I just, I think it's a very interesting thing how, when we come from family systems that are, are just so fraught, um, that parent, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the, I will not be this parenting manual only like, it's like, it's only part, you know, it's only half the volume. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause I knew what I didn't want to be, but I didn't know how to do it right. You know, right. Exactly. I married a man who had very steady New England parents who, you know, so I would often go with him. Is is this normal? How? What? Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And he had a brother who was 10 years younger than him. So he obviously, you know, helped to raise that. And so he had a lot more experience than I did. But yeah, it's it's um it's a problem when you define yourself by what you're not. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. Right. And let's just let's just pull this one out and okay. hold this up because this one is like this is so true in so many different aspects. Mm-hmm. And and like if you take this is like a statement that I think is so true for empaths, because it's a problem when we define we're, ourselves as what we're not. Mm-hmm. And and I think but for so many empaths, because we are picking up the thoughts, the feelings, the energy, the sensations all the stuff that is coming from the world outside of ourselves, in some ways, we actually do kind of have to start by recognizing what we are not Mm -hmm. because we are so frequently taking everything on. Yeah. We don't even know what's ours. Right. Right. And you get into a dysfunctional family and you're picking up all of that and and nothing feels true, you know, to who you are. And especially as a kid and and teenager, I had no idea who I was. I didn't know what was important to me. I knew what was important to my family. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, the the underlying values I do carry with me. But yeah, it was it was really um, and, I, you know, honestly, my mom died, what, 2018. Mm. And it wasn't until she passed or this just the last three, four, five months of her life that I finally made peace with her. And when she passed, I didn't grieve a lot. I had had 10 years of dementia to grieve through it and understand she wasn't going to change and make peace with it. But I I was surprised at how lost I felt because, you know, when you've been pushing against something all of a sudden and it's not there, you kind of 
yes. fall over. Yes. And it was, it was really a, a weird time for me because I no longer had something to not be, you know? And so now, and I was 58, I guess, mm-hmm. late fifties. I was like, who, okay. So who am I really? What do I want? What do I want to do? I had just opened my healing practice that same year. So I had sort of moved into this direction, but I was kind of still hiding it and, you know, not sure about things and, and I'm not worthy or am I smart enough or, you know, all those things that we get in our head when we, especially when we get gaslit a lot. Yes. So I was shocked at how lost I felt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a relief, <laughs> you know, that was that relief of I'm no longer responsible for her. Yes. But there was also just this, I mean, I remember sitting, you know, in the couple of weeks afterwards, we actually went up to the family house in Maine. You and I were talking about Maine earlier, um, just about a month after she died. And I remember just sitting there looking out at the lake and not feeling anything. There was, I mean, it was like all of that push against had just gone away. I was no longer protecting myself all the time from her, which I really did very strongly a lot. Um, And it was this, this sense of emptiness that was unsettling. It wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't afraid of it, Yeah. but it was just unsettling, especially at 58. It's like, okay, now yes. <laughs> who yes. am I? <laughs> you know? Yes. What's important to me. And now that I don't have to spend so much energy protecting myself as an empath, I literally used to just wrap myself in light every time I had to be around her. Um, how, how do I move through the world? And how can I now express myself in this, this way that I had kind of started to do, but how can I really move into that? Cause that's what feels good to me. Did your relationship with fear shift when she died? I had worked on that a lot earlier mm-hmm. um, with a, a healer. I had gotten rid of my asthma and my allergies um, by really, by understanding my belief about fear. Mm-hmm. So I had gotten rid of a lot of it, but I was, there was a lot of fear around her um, financially. Cause I got into it with her husband. Um, and, uh, and there was a lot of fear about how, how long she was going to live. Yes. 82. And, you know, we had insurance and, and she was fine financially for a while, but we also knew that she could live another 10 years. The women in her family tended to live into their nineties and she'd already had dementia for 10 years. Yep. You know, and we were on the verge of having to make the decision to move her into memory care. And we, everybody, my, my brother, who's eight years older than me and I, and all of her sisters, because she was the oldest of four sisters. Um, we all knew that she, that would not be something she wanted. She mm-hmm. was so proud of her intellect mm-hmm. that this was a, a downward spiral, but we needed to figure out how to take care of her for at least another 10 years. Mm-hmm. And she got diagnosed with cancer and it was already stage four. When we discovered it, she was given a few months to live. And at that point, that's when I really was able to make peace with her, which was beautiful because she softened when I did that. And and so we had a really lovely two or three months, you know, towards the end, not that she was really there, but she just, I didn't have to protect myself as much so that the fear began to dissipate when she got that, that diagnosis, because we knew, we knew it wasn't going to be a lot longer. And I knew that that would be the end of that part of my life. And um, because of some problems with her husband, I knew that I was no longer going to be the responsible one for him. And, you know, he's got his own kids. And, you know, so it was just, um, it was a lot of, okay, I can really breathe deep. Mm -hmm. I can really relax. I can really 
allow myself that space to go, oh yeah, who am I now? Yeah. Um, So I had taken care of a lot of the fear, except that very specific fear about her. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and that was big. It was a big one. Well, and I'm imagining, I mean, that is, that is a logistical under nightmare, like, you know, and so in some ways it's like, it seems to me like, is it even fear or is it just the, um, in irritation that feels like fear that comes from circumstances that are just like, no matter how you slice it, this just not good. Yeah. 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 I'd probably call it more anxiety than fear. Yeah. And partly because I was the one, she was here in Williamsburg where I live and my brother lives in Arkansas in the back of beyond. He's a uh, back to the earth hippie mm-hmm. <laughs> still. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, I was the sort of the, you know, the daughter usually falls to the daughters anyway, right. To, to take care of the elders. So it was sort of my responsibility. And, and then because of the situation with her husband, he kind of disappeared the last year of her life. And so I really became the point person mm-hmm. and and you know, had to work with the lawyer to protect her money from him and all this stuff that is not in my wheelhouse. Mm. You know, I'm not, I'm not a, a super detailed person. I'm not a linear thinker. I, I don't make decisions quickly and easily. And all of those things I had to do, which again, looking back at it, I did a really good job of it. I am capable of that. And that's a good thing to know about yourself, but it was not something that I, I, it just left me anxious all the time because I was constantly trying to figure out what needed to be done next. Mm. And I had my brother's support and I had my husband's support and I had my, my aunt's support. Her next youngest sister is my dearest aunt. Um, but they weren't here, you know, right. so except for my husband who was, thank God. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so it, very anxious, sometimes fear because there's, I, I've had money issues, you know, my whole life from being gaslit about money. Um, so there was a fear about it's going to bankrupt me if she lives another 10 years, you know, those kinds of things, but yeah, predominantly anxiety. And I wouldn't be surprised given what I know about myself now, if she was feeling anxiety, I mean, cause it's very common for people with dementia to be anxious and paranoid and yes, yes. and I, it's part of why I had to protect myself from her. But, uh, you know, when it's your mother, that connection is, is pretty deep. It is really and, um, deep. Yeah. So I'm sure I was picking up on a lot of that yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you were speaking about earlier, you know, the impact of being an incredibly intellectual, bright woman going through dementia. And mm-hmm. this is something we've dealt with with my mom. And I've also seen with a couple friends where it is so, like there is a whole other level of hard I think for a very smart woman to lose her mind. Mm-hmm. And with my mom, we went through a good period of time before sort of the dementia kind of before she got to the point where dementia had softened her again, where mm-hmm. she was so hard to deal with because yeah. she was defensive and yep. angry and scared and mm-hmm. really fighting you know, like just fighting nonstop because yeah. like this was just the worst nightmare for her. Right. The yeah. idea of not being the, like her whole identity was based on being, you know, bright, intelligent, highly yep. educated and of service to the world. Yeah. Yep. And so I really. And in control. And in control. Absolutely. <laughs> and in control. Yeah. Yeah. Here's that. Yeah. 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 So that was, I think that was one of the hardest things in the early days is that she was still trying to control everything. Mm -hmm. 
And she just didn't have the mental capacity to do it anymore. And boy, is that frustrating. Oh, yeah. Everybody. <laughs> oh, yeah. And there's, yeah. there's a thing I've also witnessed in regards to dementia that I think anybody who's dealt with dementia, you know, with parents or other loved ones, is that there's a long period of time where people still have their legal autonomy. Yeah. And they can get themselves into a lot of trouble. Yeah. Because... The family members and especially the close family members can see how demented somebody is, mm -hmm. but the society, especially for a very bright, intelligent person that uh, let's just say women who are really bright and intelligent, they have this sort of like, they've got this entire like lexicon of vocabulary and sort of like programmed language that they can just, you know, like they're like chatty Cathy, they can just mm -hmm. push the button and say these things that pass for intelligence right. um, very effectively. And so they fly under the radar for a long period of yeah. time doing really crazy things, but you have no, you have no legal right to intervene or to right. intercede or do anything about it. Yeah. 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 Especially when they're married and it's not to your dad. Right. You know, then th there's that other layer of, I can't step in. I can only no. advise, you know? Right. Right. And, and you kind of have to watch the train wreck as yeah. Like, yeah. It's yeah. painful. It is. It really is. It is. I I'm, you know, doing everything I can to not get dementia because I, it's just, it's a horrible way to, to end it's, your life. It's awful. It's ghastly. I hear you. I, I was really lucky. I discovered with, um, you know, my gene, my genetic gene data, gene crunching from 23 and me that I do mm -hmm. not have the dementia gene that both my parents have because uh. both of my parents have had dementia. My mom is still alive. Yeah. My dad isn't, but, but I also realized with my, with my mother, my mother's mother died, um, had dementia very early. Um, and so my mother was absolutely terrified of dementia. Like my mom would joke about just put me on an ice flow. If I start losing my mind, like mm -hmm. when we were in our, like when she was probably in her like mid thirties and early forties, she was already terrified of dementia. Yeah. My mother too. Same yeah. thing with her mother. Yeah. And I actually realized for myself that, I cannot repeat her terror or her fear yeah. of dementia, that there's a part of me that's like, okay, I'm either going to have it or I'm not going to have it. Mm -hmm. I have the genes in my favor in that I don't have the gene, I don't have the gene mutation that both of my parents had amazingly, mm -hmm. but I also am like, it is going to be what it's going to be. Yeah. Because I just realized for my mother, the gripping terror that she experienced about dementia from the time she was in her mid thirties until, she, until it got so bad that she couldn't remember, she could, she no longer has the capacity yeah. to recognize she has dementia. Right. She can't she remember that she can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> and she doesn't know what dementia is anymore. Right. You know, like it was a very long trajectory. And with my mom, I mean, one of the things that happened was that she got in, she had a benzo habit. Nobody would ever, 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 ever think of my mother as an addict. This is somebody mm. who was taking like half of a 25 milligram, like benzodiazepine, you know, mm. like half of one, mm. um, you know, before bed every night, but from the, from like basically perimenopause until I think even now she's still being medicated for anxiety. And the thing is that the mm. benzos are notorious for contributing to dementia. Yeah. So the irony was her terror, her anxiety, and her fear mm. probably exacerbated 
And her medicating for it probably exacerbated her genetic predisposition towards it as well. Yeah. The other piece of that is the spiritual piece where, you know, what you, what you dwell on is what you draw to yourself. Yes. So uh, yeah, I try to, I try to just live a good, healthy life and, and not fixate on it. And, um, and you know, every now and then I go, yeah, I really don't want to do that, but I don't, like you said, I don't dwell on it. No. Um, because it is either it's going to happen or it's not. And there's, you know, I, all I can do is keep myself healthy, you know, (laughs) and that's good for me, no matter what, you know, what my elder, elder years look like. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not a way I want to go, but if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So So as we're having this conversation, I mean, this is just, I could talk about, you know, narcissistic parents and dementia. (laughs) For hours and hours and it's hours. A combination. It's such a combination, isn't it? Just <laughs> uh, and one of the things that you were talking about was, I mean, you know, just the driving yourself out of the skid, you know, reclaiming your health. And also, you, you know, sort of like, I mean, a couple of things I wanted to touch on was one, a sort of like, how did you find out or recognize you were an, an empath? Um, and then really talking about the relationship with your intuition, the relationship with your guides, like how have, like, how did stuff shift? So I know I just threw a whole bunch of different <laughs> pieces out at you. So uh, I don't know, maybe we just start with talking about really like that journey of driving out of the skid and what does that look like for you? Yeah, it's, um, well, I, I, I have, I, I, where I, I feel like I got to start is that I didn't know I was an empath for the longest time. I mean, it's yes. really... And, you know, I used to read science fiction fantasy books where there were empaths, right? you know, and, and I loved them. And I, I have, you know, I read a whole bunch of them and, you know, the, the dragon riders of Pern where they're empathic with their dragons. Yes. And, you know? So I love the concept, but I so didn't. You had run into the, it. it wasn't that you were somebody who had never encountered the concept because I know there are people right. who never encountered, but you had encountered the concept, but I didn't had. identify. Right. But I didn't, I didn't know that it was a real thing. Ah, you know, it was okay. science fiction fantasy. Right. Um, and I will tell you that I I have in my books that I've written, I've written about heroines who have gifts I have now. I had no idea I had. So clearly at some level, I knew these kinds of things. Um, and I know I've been a healer in many lifetimes. So, you know, it's not like this is this is new this time around. But um so I, I don't know exactly when I identified that way, but I did start my my best friend, who was also a writer. That's how we met. Um, I was doing some research for a book and had hooked up with a psychic group up in Northern Virginia, where she lives. And she had started to meet all of these people with all of these gifts. And I, I think she's the one who probably identified me because that's that's kind of her role. She you know, she leads me into these things. Um, I, I, I don't remember specifically, but I'm pretty sure she was the one who probably said, Lauren, you're an empath. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but, and that once, you know, and it, sometimes once you get that knowledge about yourself, everything kind of clicks into place and the universe place. starts bringing you information about it. Um, and so it wasn't an, un, I wasn't, I didn't resist the idea that I was an empath. It just right. made total sense to of me. Of course. Yeah. And so and I had already, well, I guess at the same time I was, I was beginning to be brought into the spiritual as you know, the spiritual path of my life. And so there was all kinds of strange things happening 
that I was just easily, I, I just was going, oh, that's very cool. Tell me more about that. You know, it's like, <laughs> yes, I want to do that. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know? Cause it fascinated me. It was something I've always been fascinated in, in fiction and written about in fiction, but um, never dreamed that I could do those things myself or have those experiences. So yeah, I, I mean, I was definitely in, in the menopause, you know, phase of my life before I even identified, but that's also when I learned how to shield myself, which helped me tremendously with my mother um, yes. during those last 10 years of her life. In fact, it was during that 10 years. It wasn't because I was really bombarded by her. I, it would feel like I got punched in the chest every time I walked into her apartment for a long time. Yeah. So somebody taught me how to, in fact, it was, um, there was a psychic that my friend had gone to see and she said, you got to come up and go see this guy. He's, he's really amazing. And I totally trust her. She's like my sister that I you know never had. And so I had a reading with him. And one of the things he told me was that you need to, you need to, to shield yourself. And he taught me how to do that. It's kind of like an invisibility cloak, the Mm -hmm. visualization, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the first tool I was given as an empath. And it was by far the most important tool I was given as an empath, because it really did help me in those last years with my mom. And it helps me now. The world is very hard place to be. And especially during the pandemic, you'd go to the grocery store and I would sit in my car for a few minutes before I went in and ground myself and and shield myself because otherwise I'd walk in and I would just be almost in tears within seconds from all the fear and anxiety in in the atmosphere. So especially the beginning of the pandemic, you know, and and know anything, nobody knew anything. And like you'd walk down the aisles and the shelves would be empty Mm -hmm. and it would be sort of like, how long is this going to go on? And is this, is this the beginning of like the world changing? It was, it was really intense. Yeah, Yeah. it was, it was. So as an empath, that was uh, that tool, that one single tool that I got one of my very first, you know, times I was really dipping my toe in the, in the spirituality world was, is still probably the strongest tool that I have in my toolbox Mm -hmm. as an empath. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still have to occasionally remember, okay, I'm feeling, I'm feeling this stuff and I don't want to feel this stuff. So, okay, I'm just going to put my, my cloak around me. And I always envision it with, um, mirrors on the outside mm-hmm. so that anything coming to me, I always intention that it gets reflected back. Yes. I always use the term from whence it came yeah. as love, as love yeah. so that it's, you know, I'm, I'm turning it into something more positive. Um, but I don't, I don't want it. It's not mine. It's not yours. Yeah. 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 I, um, dropping the cloak of invisibility on us and that, and that, that reflective shield is such a powerful way to like, not be the person who's just absorbing all of it all the time. Yeah. 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 You know, and something you're saying that I just really want to hold up is the fact that you were experiencing, like, I, I don't know if this is true, but from the way you're describing it, it sounds to me like even if you were not in the physical proximity of your mom, and as you were saying, when you were away from your dad, you could still feel their energy. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the thing too, with some of these relationships, you don't have to be in their physical proximity right. to still be impacted by them. And that's yeah. a really big deal as well. Yeah, and And you feel crazy. Yeah. Cause yeah. it's like, I don't know why I'm feeling this way. Right. Right. You know, well, and then if, and if you're dealing with a gaslighter, 
who's saying to you, no, everything is fine. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong here. Dad's mm-hmm. not drinking. Right. Then you really don't know what's going on because you can't even no get idea. a reality check. You can't go and look and be like, nope, he's drunk as a skunk. Right. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. really, it's yeah, really it's, crazy yeah. making. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy making. Yeah. yeah. You know, something that has been occurring to me is I've been hearing people talk about, you know, people who come into understanding themselves as empaths later and come into things clicking together. I've been realizing that in some ways, I wonder if some of this sort of clicking it all together is a developmental thing, because mm. I'm somebody who knew I was an empath at a very, very early age. And I started learning the tools of filters and shields and things like that at a very early age, but I did not necessarily know how to put it all together or how to protect myself. Like it was a real learning process and a learning curve. And one of the things that I'm hearing is that those of you who come into this in your forties and fifties frequently get it a lot faster than those of us who 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 like were born into it, but um, have been sort of struggling with it. And sometimes I really wonder if like, you know, it's it's like whether, you know, sort of you just, you got to get to a certain place in life in order to fully integrate something and fully understand it. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think that's true about a lot of things that, that there's things that we're, you know, we, we gather along the way but we don't really know how to implement them or don't know how to combine them in a creative way. And when you're in a position where you just desperately need help and somebody goes here, try this and it works. It's like, okay, this is good. I've got this. And I do feel like I kind of, I, I resisted the spiritual path for a little while, but once I, once I sort of began to see that there was realness to it, there was actual things happening that we couldn't see. For me, it was like, okay, great. I've been experiencing this my whole life. Bring it on. Let me, you know, help me understand this. How can I, I mean, it's a superpower, right? To be able to feel like this doesn't, doesn't feel like a superpower when you don't know what's happening, but it is such a gift to me now, but that's also because I can control when I'm willing to receive what other people are feeling and when I'm not. Right. So there's a choice there as opposed to just being bombarded all the time. Right. 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 That's you huge. Can, yeah. That is absolutely huge. You know, the other thing that you were you were speaking about that I think is a really important thing to acknowledge is for you, the conditioning of what is fiction and what is nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And the idea that like you had all of this this magic within you, you had all the sensitivity within you. And yet, maybe because of like your family, maybe, who knows, but but that there was sort of like, oh, no, this is all relegated to fiction, right? Which in some ways, like for me, you know, seeing the Star Trek episode, you know, the empath with Jem, which oh, my yeah. initials are Oh, Jem, I remember that one for sure. <laughs> you know, I did not like, like it was not fiction to me. Like I saw it mm. and I went, oh, like, and it was sort of like, I did not have that boundary of like, this is fiction, therefore this cannot be real for me. And I'm just thinking though, that for so many people, that boundary of now that's fiction, this is fantasy, this is fiction, this is magic is not real. Mm -hmm. And how hard that is when you're coming up against the reality of your sensitivity. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 
I, I don't know exactly why I didn't embrace it as real. Um, I think fiction for me was an escape from my family. And so escaping into something different was very attractive. And I almost, and I'm just thinking about this now, but in a way, I think if I had known that that was real too, that it wouldn't have been an escape for me, Mm. you know? So um, I don't, I don't know exactly why I kept that so separate, but I was, I loved movies. I loved books. I loved television shows. And like I said, I've read all of these things well into my adulthood. I don't read them a lot anymore because I get to live it now, but I just resonated with them so much, you know, and I just, I just thought I was weird. You know, <laughs> I wonder as you were speaking, I wonder if something about the programming to be terrified of the world and terrified mm. of reality, like the world is a scary place. Yeah. If in some ways there was such a deep sense of conditioning about the fact that the world is this dangerous, scary place to have magic be part of reality would suddenly taint it into danger and scary. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that feels very true. It does. It's, it's like, that's the beauty and don't bring it into this ugly world. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. That feels, that feels very true actually. Yeah. 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 That was my, that was my happy place. It was my escape. Right. And, And if it's part of my everyday life, then it's just part of the crap. Yes. So yeah, thank you for that insight. You're so welcome. And and what an amazing pivot to go from that being fantasy to it now being reality for you. Yeah. How cool is that? That's amazing. (laughs) It's awesome. It's I I love what I do now. And it's so um satisfying and empowering to like step into what you're really here to do. And I did, I did resist this journey for a while. And I think it was because I was still baked in that fear. I didn't want to change anything because life was pretty good and safe and stable at the moment. And I did have a lot of fear that me stepping into this other path was going to disrupt that in a, in a way that, that would, you know, explode my life in ways that were not good. Right, right, right. Well, and I sort of, I've, I am, I really think of it as like sort of the letting go of the good to go for the great. If you have Mm. a sure thing, I like that. (laughs) Yeah. If you have a sure thing, it's actually the, I think it's the subtitle of a chapter for a book that I, for it, for a multi-author book that is going to be coming out and probably, Mm. possibly around the same time that this podcast is coming out. But, um, you know, I just, I think that when you have a sure thing, like you were an award-winning author where you were getting, and also your identity is tied into you're getting all these strokes, you're getting all of this validation, you're getting all of this acknowledgement. Not only are you letting go or you're potentially killing the golden goose, but you are also surrendering an identity where you've been getting accolades, where you've been getting validation, when you've been getting a lot of acknowledgement. That is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. 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 Especially to go from sure thing to uncertainty. And starting and building from the ground up with a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really, I mean, I did, I walked away from writing the novels. I think my last one came out in 2015 and I had a great publisher and the, I mean, they're still advertising them regularly, which is unheard of in this industry. 
And I walk yeah, the away fact from that it. your publishers are advertising your books is yes. right. like really at all, at all. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yes. So, um, yeah, that that's a whole other magical story we'll have to talk about sometime. Yeah. How it happened. But um, yeah, it was it was some of it was a fear of success. Um, and I think that's because anytime I did step into the, the spotlight, my mom would find a way to, you know, make it not feel good. Mm-hmm. She used to say, so when are you going to write a real book? Ooh. You know, after I went on a word with my very first novel kind of thing, but it was a romance. So it didn't oh, count as a real book. Didn't count so, as yeah. a real book. So oh. I think there was some of that going on and, and, um, but also I think I was just ready for something new. I was starting this path. And I didn't know where it was going to take me, but it's, um, it's, it's what I came here to do, you know, in this lifetime. So it was, you know, every, every little twist and turn brings you to where you're supposed to be next. If you, if you allow it to. And, and, um, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. But yeah, I was definitely afraid of losing what I had Mm -hmm. for something Mm -hmm. that was unknown. Yeah. Lauren, this feels like a two-part conversation because, (laughs) I cannot believe how fast the time has gone by. And I literally mean that um, because I really wanted to talk about, you know, working with our guides and mm. just, you know, sort of your relationship with intuition and, and you, oh, you yeah. saying, you have this other magical story about the writing and everything. And we're really coming up against the time. <laughs> so I guess for right now, what I would like to, and I'm sure that, the audience, my audience, I imagine you guys would love to have Lauren back and hear, hear more of her story. Yeah. Uh, I would love to, I would love to come back and continue. Cause I just love talking to you. It's just oh, so it is fun. such a delight. It's well, and I'm just like, it's, I'm hearing more of your story and the time, like you and you and I were born within a couple of years of each other. We're both deal, you know, we both dealt with demented parents. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there are so many amazing similarities as well as having a very high powered, really intense, intensely smart and, you know, um, somewhat narcissistic or very narcissistic in your case, mother, I was Mm -hmm. joking that, you know, the way I sort of think of my, you know, the, my mom's flavor of narcissism is that nobody would ever, you know, unless you really knew what was going on under the hood you know, that I would call her sort of, she's the pumpkin spice latte version of, <laughs> of narcissism. But um, yeah, and I don't know, like some people would, everybody's mileage may vary. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Yeah, but um, the question that I want to ask you right now is what, um, you know, if, if they're like, what right now feels like the audience, like that you want, you want to be sure that we hear? The word that comes to mind is hope. The, the world is hard right now mm-hmm. and it has been for a while. And I think it's going to be for at least another couple of years, maybe longer, yeah. but there is so much good that is rising. There is so much good that is rising and women are leading it. The divine yes. feminine is rising quickly and is, is this beautiful balancing energy that we need in the world. So there's a lot of hope. I feel very hopeful that a better world is being built. Mm-hmm. It's just still kind of submerged. It hasn't come up into, you know, the general public's awareness yet, but it's rising and it's rising fast. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. And so that's, that's, that's what I want to leave people with because that's what I, um, 
I, I come back to, it's kind of a touchstone for me right now. Um, I grew up in a very political family, believe it or not. And so I have a hard time turning off that. And so I just have to remind myself that there is so much going on that is not being reported on, is not being seen. And my my favorite touchstone is a picture of the women's rally after Trump was elected in 2016. All those pink hats filling D.C. and yeah. the joy. Yes. I mean, I wasn't even there and I could feel the joy. It was spectacular yes. to just feel it. I was up here in Maine and we were we were like anchoring the light. My mm-hmm. friend Amy was with me up here and we were just holding the space and holding the yeah. love and beaming light. And it really was absolutely spectacular. And you're right. The way things are reported is not necessarily what's really going on in the no. world. World, You know, and the other thing is, I just, just thinking about the sort of the relationship to narcissism if if sort of like it's almost like we have this kind of like cultural in, epidemic of narcissism mm-hmm. and one of the things that is ha- that narcissists do is they gaslight people to believe the reality that isn't even theirs right like they're oh, yeah. so invested in they're so invested in being right that even if their reality is not real they will gaslight everybody else into yeah. it and i think right now we're kind of being gaslit into seeing the world through this lens darkly yes. where it's like, you know, and there are, there are definitely agents of chaos that are invested in keeping people scared, keeping mm-hmm. people down. So I love your message mm-hmm. of just, and the reminder of all of the hope and also just like the the goodness that is rising, Boy. that is yeah. being restored. Yeah, 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 it absolutely is. And so, yeah, yeah hang in there because it's coming. It's yeah. it's rising fast. And more of us fast. who tap into that light and bring our own light to it, the faster it's going to rise. Exactly. And something you said earlier, it's like where we focus our attention is what we build on. Mm-hmm. You know, we can focus on the fear and we can focus, you know, or we can focus on the light, yeah. focus on the light. Yeah. So Lauren, before we complete this, one of the things I always love to do with everybody is to use this broadcast as a time machine, because I mm-hmm. really believe there's something power, there's something magical about broadcasting, there's something magical about, you know, words that go across time and space. Oh, yeah. And I believe that not only does the, does this podcast exist in perpetuity for God only knows how long, and gets to probably perhaps exist beyond you and I like, and, um, yeah, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> wouldn't that be cool? And, you know, so that I know that this message is broadcasting well into the future, but I also really believe that this podcast is like a piece of fabric in, in, in the timeline that can fold over on itself and that we can broadcast backwards. And mm-hmm. so thinking about this moment in time, folding over and touching another moment in time when you were young, when you were struggling, when you really were being gaslit and did not feel and you were sick and confused and just all of that. If you knew that you could go back to her and look straight in her eyes, maybe hold her face in your in the palm in your in your hands mm-hmm. and look her in the eye, what would you say to her? I would tell her that she is strong and courageous and wise beyond knowing and that she had everything she needed to move through the world and it was going to be great. 
Mm, mm, mm. You are strong. You are wise. You are courageous. You have everything you need. So Lauren, before I let you go, how do people get in touch with you? Well, the easiest way is my website because you can get to all my socials and, and email and all of that there. But it's, it is heartlightjoy.com. Um, I have a couple of free things there that I would um, love for you to take advantage of. One is if you sign up for my newsletter, you get a free PDF download that is Lauren's top three ways to communicate with your guides. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of a primer for for introducing you to what that's like. And we will have to talk about that again because yeah. that's a passion of mine. And the other one is I offer a free 20-minute call. And there's no requirement for this. I love to talk to people and get to know them. And and if we connect in a way that you want to explore further, I'm all great for that. If we connect in a way that just makes you feel good in the moment, I'm good with that too. Cause that's I just love to share the share the energy. Um, and so that's also on my website. Wonderful. Wonderful. So you guys, you can find all of these in the show notes. And if Lauren will give me permission, I will also include um, links for her novels. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah. Awesome. So, so you can check out Lauren's romance novels as well. (laughs) Lauren, thank you so much for being here. I would, I, I will, I would love to have you back because I really do want to have a conversation about guides and about trusting our intuition and about sort of the journey. It feels like this episode was kind of like part one. It's like (laughs) the story of who you are, how you got here. Yeah. And then, you know, and then part two can really be about what, what does it look like now? So yeah, yeah I would thank, love to talk yeah. about that. So that'd be yeah. awesome. Thank you so much for well, thank being you. here and having this conversation. You're a great host. And, oh. and I just, I love being in your energy. Oh, right back at you, sister. Right <laughs> back at you. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.